Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 13 this morning. That's where we're going to start out. And there are a few other passages we're going to look at. Uh, I'm probably going to be uh, quick when we go there. So uh, if you don't get a chance to go there, uh, please write them down. Uh, and maybe we can include them also on the live stream. But we're going to begin in Romans 13 and look at verses 1 through 7. And uh, I'm going to probably more than usual stick to my notes and closer to the pulpit uh, just because of the seriousness of what I'm about to uh, tell you this morning. But I want to begin by sincerely wishing uh, all of the mothers in our congregation and those watching a happy Mother's Day. Listen, I thank God for you. Uh, I pray for you often. Uh, and I, I encourage you this morning to lead your children uh, in the faith uh, in Jesus Christ, continue to do that, continue to teach them to rely on His grace. Nothing would bring me greater joy this morning than to provide you uh, mothers with a sermon that expresses my heartfelt gratitude for all that you do, and um, also maybe a challenge for you to keep on in your vital role for God's kingdom. But God has led me in a different direction over the past few weeks. And so in prayerful dependence, I must follow him and his leading and what I believe he desires for me to communicate to his church here at Dublin First Baptist. Uh, I feel as though I would not be in obedience to him if I were to even wait a week. And so uh, to our mothers, I do want to ask you to accept my apologies, but please know this, when we can come together again, we will have that celebration, especially that part where we get to dedicate together to the Lord those gifts of God that have come into our church family in the past year, and we will commit to stand behind you as a church as you endeavor to raise those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Please know that this sermon has been constructed in fervent prayer and fasting and great conviction and repentance in my own life, and that continues even to this morning. So uh, when I say anything this morning, I say it to myself as much as to you. It's been weighing as a heavy burden. Uh, on me for the past few weeks, and that burden stems from a passion to lead God's people here to glorify Him and experience good from His hand. Now, for nearly two months, your pastoral staff in the elected diaconate here at Dublin First Baptist has prayerfully decided that it was in the church's best interest to encourage live stream only worship services due to the COVID 19 pandemic. And I'm of persuasion that we made the right choice there. I've seen God's hand in it. I've seen him act. We've seen one come to know Jesus as Savior during that time. Um, at this point, our, our governor has loosened restrictions to the point where now we have churches. Many of our sister churches are meeting outside this morning. We've been given the go-ahead to have those outdoor services 
uh, with proper social distancing, with safety. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, please pray for your deacons and your pastoral staff this week as they uh, prayerfully decide how to lead this church into this next phase. Uh, I believe, I believe uh, that it's time for us to return to corporate congregational worship in some format. I do. Um, I say that as one leader among many here. I thank God that Dublin First Baptist Church operates under a congregational form of church government. This isn't Jason Decides. Uh, this is the church decides. And we do that through an elected diaconate for a lot of decisions. Uh, but as your overseer, as your shepherd, as your pastor, I've got to provide you with the message that I believe God has given me to give you this morning. I've got to be faithful to him, whether or not it results in positive or negative responses. I'm sure this will not be the first time that occurs. And I do it out of love for him. I do it out of love for you. And in a response to, honestly, a significant amount of inquiries that have been handed my way over the past two months regarding what are we to do? What are we to do during this time? None of us has been through this before. What are we to do? And I don't want to tell you. I want God's word to tell us. It does. I believe it tells us what we're to do. We're to submit, we're to steward, and we're to stand. Let's read Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tributes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. And honor to whom honor. Before we begin this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be here amongst us and in every home where one of our, uh, our church members, where one of, our, uh, one of the people joining with us on live stream is watching today. I pray your Holy Spirit would be active in his, his ministry uh, of illuminating your word to us today. We want to know what we should do. Uh, we come to you asking for wisdom and discernment something that is so needed during a time like this. But you've promised to give it. And so in faith, we ask you to show us that even this morning, God, I pray that when we are informed by your word, it would not stop there, but it would lead to a transformation, a response that brings glory to you and good to us. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In Romans 13, 1 to 7, uh, in response to what are we to do in times like this, but this isn't exclusive to the COVID-19 issue, we're to submit. We're told here we're to submit to authorities. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I have a responsibility to submit to the authorities. Now, this is the quintessential passage that people turn to uh, uh, for uh, obedience to the government. It seems remarkably clear. As long as it's taken in context, I believe that it is. It says, let every soul, that's pretty all-encompassing, be subject to the higher powers. That, too, is pretty all-encompassing. As long as it's taken in context. You know, as well as I do, 
that there's exceptions to this clear command. We can turn back to Acts chapter 4 and verses 18 to 20. And it says there, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Also in Acts 5, verse 29, we have a similar situation. It says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered them and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. So we've got two exceptions from the book immediately prior to this book in the Bible regarding that. Um, Paul's presentation here in Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, seems to be without exceptions to what he's saying here, uh, at least in the immediate context. If we just take Romans 13, verses 1 to 7 at face value, Paul does not give us any right there, at least at face value in our English translation. Hold on with me here. Now, why am I even talking about this, Jason? We haven't really had an issue so far where it's maybe become a necessity uh, to obey God rather than man in all of this. I think it's gotten pretty close sometimes. And honestly, the reason I feel compelled to tell you this is if I've seen anything over the last two months is that that day is coming soon. And me, as your pastor, and and as you as the church, I've got to equip you for knowing how to respond biblically to it, not based on what you feel, not based on what you want, definitely not what's based on what is easy, but what does the word of God say in this situation? I want you to be armed with his truth for when that situation arises. I want to prepare you for that. So yes, in in verses 1 to 7, we don't see any exceptions here. But we've got them, do we not? We just looked at two from Acts, in Acts 4 and Acts 5. We've got them from Paul's own life. We've got them from Peter's own life. We've got them from Jesus' own life. Honestly, do you want some biblical examples of when we are to obey God instead of man, if there's ever uh, that uh, discrepancy? Well, we can go back to the three wise men, or however many there were, who refused to be part of of Herod's uh, murderous plan back in Matthew. We can go to those three Hebrew young men who would not bow uh, to idolatry, even though it was the law. We can go back to Daniel, who prayed anyway. And I do want to kind of park here for a second on that specific example, because when we see Daniel do what was right in God's sight, instead of obeying the law, we don't see Daniel hiding in his prayer closet and the three guys accusing him, uh, using thermal imaging cameras to figure out what he's doing. Daniel went to the window, as he always did, not parading his liberty, not flaunting his liberty in God, but he went to that window and he prayed and worshiped just like he always had. We can go back to Esther's disobedience. There's another example of a a political leader. She was the queen, and she disobeyed the law of the land by going into the king unbidden. Thank God she did. She stopped uh, an entire genocide from happening for such a time as this. We can go back to the Hebrew midwives who refused to be part of Pharaoh's infanticide. So obviously, there's clear exceptions to the clear instruction of Paul here in verses 1 to 7 in Romans 13. Now, it's probably too late, but that's honestly not what I want to focus on here. Uh, The teaching here in Romans is that in every instance, except where we would be disobeying God's will, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be subject unto the higher powers. We're to be subject. We're to submit. Paul's great concern here, and he had good reason for one, 
is that Christians would not threaten God's glory by uh, living in lawlessness or by supporting anarchy. He had good reason for that. They were accused of it. There were probably some small bands of Christians who were involved in it at that time. History tells us that's the case. So Paul tells them, listen, government was created by God as a minister uh, of God for our good. Our leaders, this is hard to reconcile sometimes, but every one of our leaders, the ones we think are good and the ones we don't think are very good, every one of them is in their position and has been placed there within the sovereignty of God. And it's noteworthy also that in this context, I think sometimes it gets ripped out to demand uh, unquestioned compliance to government. Uh, It's still in the context of even the end of verse 12, uh, chapter 12, those few verses there, where uh, Paul tells Christians, look, do not take vengeance on yourself, leave it to God. You know what sometimes God uses to exact uh, judgment and justice and administration of his justice? Well, sometimes he subcontracts that to governments. All right, and so we have to keep this whole thing in context here lest we rest it out and make it say something it doesn't say. Let's get to the point here. Does Paul here in Romans 13, 1 through 7, demand unquestioned obedience, unquestioned compliance? Well, I believe from the passages we've already mentioned in Acts and all those examples that were given that that is not the case. Look, if an edict happens to be the law of the land or legal, um, that's not the case. 100% of the time. We're we're told that in Scripture in these examples. You and I have instances from our own recent historical past where something might have been legal, but it sure wasn't right. The Holocaust was legal. Thank God for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, other Lutheran Christian ministers who stood up to that. Slavery was legal. Segregation was legal. Apartheid was legal. And there were Christians who stood up against it. There were Christians who went along with it. Both are true. Look, we'd be wise to learn from these historical injustices and all these examples in Scripture. We'd be wise to learn this. Our morality cannot depend exclusively on what is lawful. It must depend only on what is biblical. Hopefully those are both the same, and we ought to fight for those to be the same. Does he demand obedience? Well, he doesn't say that. I don't know what translation might say that. I didn't honestly look at them. But I went back to the Greek, the original language that God inspired Paul to write here. And he does not say obey. He says hupotasso. Now, I want to give you a little Greek lesson, but it's really important. So please don't go, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not that hard. Hupotasso is what he says here. Be subject. Hupotasso. God inspired Paul to use this particular word for submission. It's often translated submit. When we went through 1 Peter, it talked about our relationships, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, employees to employers, uh, church body to church leadership uh, of, of submission. Is that unquestioned compliance, complete obedience in every situation? No. What hupotasso means is to arrange yourself under in an orderly manner. That's what Strong's uh, defines it as. Thayer's Greek lexicon says, hupotasso means this, a willing, like I choose to do this, a willing uh, yielding to admonition and to advice and to management. That's what hupotasso is. It's important uh, when we find a Greek word like that, 
and wonder, is this really what he's saying? Somebody told me I'm supposed to obey unquestioned all the time. Well, let's, let's look at God's intent here. So the human author of Romans is Paul. We go immediately. Is there anywhere around here in this book, in, in the chapter surrounding it, that he uses hupotasso? That can give us some insight into, is that what he intends? If we can't find it, we go to his other writings. We might go to Galatians or Ephesians or 2 Thessalonians and see, did God have Paul use that there? And then if we can't find it there, we go to all of Scripture. And so we've got some other examples of, of hupotasso in scripture. We already mentioned Paul's and Peter's uh, direction that this is how we're supposed to live among each other. Every Christian, we're supposed to willingly yield to each other's admonition and advice, not unquestioned compliance. We'd be in a mess if we did that sometimes. Um, here's another example of hupotasso. Jesus, he's teaching in the temple as a pre-adolescent young man, probably. And his parents can't find him, and they're scared, and they're worried, and they find him, and they say, hey, you need to come back with us. You scared us. Come home. Come home with us to Nazareth. And it says Jesus, he hupotasseled them. He willingly yielded to their, he's the, this is the sovereign king of kings, the creator, and he hupotasseled to them. Willingly yielded to their admonition, their advice, their management, arranged himself in an orderly manner under his human parents. Um, that's Upotasso. So, why do I believe that's not God's intent? Full, unquestioned obedience. Well, because there's another word that God could have used, that Paul could have used right here. It's Hupokuo. There's another word that describes uh, full, unquestioned obedience. Do you want to know where that's found? In Romans 6, another writing of Paul, a couple chapters earlier. Uh, Paul says, look, you used to be slaves to sin. You didn't have an ounce of freedom or liberty. You lived in wickedness. You couldn't help but do it. You were slaves to sin. But you're not now, Christians. You're not slaves to sin anymore. You've been freed by Jesus Christ. And you are to hupokuo him, full, unquestioned obedience. Never once deciding, well, I don't know if this is right or wrong. No, if he says it, I'm going to do it. That's hupokuo. Do you want to know else, uh, where else hupokuo is found? To me, this is the strongest one uh, that differentiates these two terms. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is asleep at the bottom of a boat, and there's a storm raging, and the disciples wake him. He goes to the top, and he says, peace, be still. And his disciples say, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and waves obey him. There was not one errant wave or gust of wind that said, yes, I'm yielding to your admonition and advice, creator, sovereign of the universe, but I think I'm going to keep gusting. I think it's best that I crash against the boat once more. It hupokuoed him. And that's not the word that we're used, that's used here. That's not the word that God has Paul say that we're to do to our governments. Why? Because we have uh, a second uh, person we're to submit to. To, to our God, to the Almighty. Yes, we're to submit to authorities. But if there ever is a time in which we can't, because it would mean disobeying God, we submit to the Almighty, to Christ over all. To him belongs our unquestioned obedience, our full compliance, our hupokuo. He is our sovereign. He is our king of kings. And so when the edict of mortal man demands disobedience to the Almighty, ever-living one, the immutable one, well, we bow to him. We bow to him. And that's the clear apostolic teaching from those two references in Acts. That's the clear apostolic teaching from the life of Peter and Paul and John and others who chose to obey God rather than man when it was necessary, when it was required. But I'd even say, even in those acts of, my, we might call them civil disobedience, was never violent, but even in those acts, were they not being submissive? I'd propose that submission to higher powers can include disobeying man 
in order to obey God and then accepting the consequences of that according to the law. That's what Peter did. That's what Paul did. That's what Dr. King did. We have a long history of people doing that. Every single one of these faithful apostolic witnesses who chose to do that because they said it's better to obey God than to man in this instance. Every one of them were in prison and they were exiled or they were even martyred because obedience to God was more precious than the approval of man or the freedom from punishment. They had a higher obedience because they had a higher sovereign to which to submit. Now, secondly, what are we to do in situations like this? And again, this is in particular to COVID-19. It's it's how we should live our whole lives, but it's this. We have a responsibility to steward. Uh, Ben read in our morning scripture reading that passage from Matthew 25, that parable of Jesus, that earthly story with a heavenly meaning with this message. As followers of Jesus, you and I are responsible to care for and to expand what God has given us. We call it the parable of the talents, right? And so in our modern day English, we think, well, that means what God has given us, our spiritual gifts and our skill set. 100%, you better care for and expand what God has given to you. But in that day and age, the talents were a financial term. He was talking about money, all right? And so this goes so much farther beyond our our talents as far as we think of them and our skill sets and uh, uh, any natural gifts God has given us. Yes, it's talking about them. But it's talking about our our possessions, our temporal ones here in this world. We are responsible to care for them and to expand them. Uh, It's talking about our our financial things, uh, our money. Yes, we're supposed to steward them, to care for them and expand it. What about our freedom? Is that outside of this command? I don't think so. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians 5, verse 1. And here in the midst of a heretical threat of legalism, this deadly false doctrine that our salvation is the result of our works, Paul commands the church at Galatia here, Galatians 5, 1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He tells them, stand fast in liberty, in the freedom that Christ gave you, because this is our God. He's a God of freedom. This is our Christ. He bought our freedom from the penalty of sin, from its power over our lives. He bought it by his shed blood on the cross. And so Paul says here, and I pray with him, God, help me to never again entangle myself in the bondage of sin or in attempting to earn right standing before you by what I do or don't do. In Colossians 2.14, we're told that Jesus Christ wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. He took it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross to free us. And it's his blood that did that. Now, these passages here, this one in Galatians and the one I just mentioned in Colossians, they speak of our spiritual, our eternal freedom in Christ. There's no doubt about them. And I'm not going to attempt this morning to twist them into, uh, uh, to apply to our national or to our political liberties with this one exception, with this one exception. We only know what true freedom is because of Jesus Christ. You and I only have any kind of concept about what freedom is because of what we have in Jesus Christ. We were in bondage. We were slaves to sin, shackled by sin, on our way to death. But because of the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, we have freedom. 
We have liberty. (laughs) Freedom from the power of sin over our lives. Freedom from that penalty. A home in heaven, eternal life. And Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in that liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Remember how it was bought for us at such a cost. The blood of the Son of God. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 13. Because as we, uh, we go into an application uh, to uh, not a spiritual freedom, not an eternal freedom, but what you and I know now, I can see that uh, an argument might be presented. Uh, it was presented to Paul here in, in regard to our spiritual freedom. Uh, in verse 13, it says, For brethren, you have been called to liberty. You've been called to enjoy it, to care for it, to steward it, to expand it. You've been called to liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love, by love, serve one another. Serve one another in love. So uh, listen, our freedom in Christ is not a total freedom. Not in the way where I get to do whatever I want. That's not what he bought us. All right. It's, it's governed. It's guarded. It's hemmed in. It's restricted by Christian love. I'll, now I'll still say that's freedom. Freedom like we've never known. Uh, that's freedom, but uh, it's not a freedom to do whatever we want and, and by doing so hurt other people as well because that's my freedom. But listen to me, you will never not act in love when you're obedient to God. You'll never be unloving. That is what we learned in 1 John two weeks ago. How do I love God? How do I love the family of God? I obey his commandments. I obey his commandments. And whenever I'm living in obedience to him, I'm going to be stewarding this liberty that he bought us. In Christ, I'll be standing against false doctrines like legalism. Now, there is another liberty that we know. And when I say we, I'm talking about anyone who's listening here that is from the United States, especially here in North Carolina where this applies to us. And that other liberty is a liberty that was bought by our countrymen. And this liberty, I want you to understand this, this is a, a liberty that also has been granted to us by that very same hand of providence that got us eternal liberty. Very same one. It's this American experiment that we call it. And for the last 244 years, we've had the the grace of God poured out on this nation that we can know liberty, that we can know freedom, that we can have a republic if we can keep it. This liberty, too, just like the other one, it was bought by blood. I'm going to ask Tommy to throw a slide up there. Or, uh, got it. Okay. Because we're, I think it's important. Data is important. Science is important. Facts are important. That's almost 1.2 million. 1.2 million of your countrymen, my countrymen, since the war for independence, have given everything so that you and I can know the freedom that God's given to us. Given it all. All right, shed for my liberty, for your liberty, for our liberty, for our kids' liberty, God willing, for our grandkids' liberty. You know, sometimes it's not even for our liberty. It's not, and honestly, in the past few weeks, look, I've witnessed an all-out assault on liberty and freedom. I have. It's not directly appointed to the church. I'm not going to try to argue that, like the church is the only one being persecuted here. It's not. I've seen suppression of free speech. (laughs) I've seen censorship a free speech. It's an all-out attack on the First Amendment, I'll tell you that. And when that one goes, don't think other ones are going to stand. Sometimes it's not even our liberty that we fight for. You should go to the next slide. This is a friend of mine, Staff Sergeant Matthew A. Pacino. It's a friend I served with 
for a little bit of time when I was in the military. I've lost some friends, lost more associates, but this is the one I was closest to. Uh, we, weren't, we were training together, went different routes. He became a 18 Echo Special Forces Commo Sergeant. I went to med school, but um, he's a good guy, right? He was killed in action November 23rd, 2009. I believe it was his sixth deployment in the global war on terror to either Iraq or Afghanistan, killed in Afghanistan uh, by uh, an IED. And um, look, sometimes it's not even for our freedom. Did I tell you that we are, have a responsibility to steward our liberty, that we're to care for it, and that we're to expand it? That's what Matthew was doing. Because honestly, by the time 2009 rolled around, I was out of the Army. Matthew was still fighting. And uh, Taliban, by that time, had pretty much, they were near powerless. But we were still over there. And do you know what Matthew was fighting for? I mean, I, he told me he, what he was fighting for. And one of those things, he's fighting so a little Afghani girl go to school. She didn't have to live her life surrounded in a burqa for the rest of her life. It's not even about just our liberty, because that's what stewardship, that is what that passage in Matthew 25 called us to. If we're given something by God, are we supposed to just hold on to it? Are we supposed to bury it? No, we're supposed to love it and treasure it and then expand it, steward it. We're called to steward our liberty. And honestly, in, um, in his life and in the loss of his life, Matthew reflected the character of God. He really did. A God of justice. A God who's so concerned for justice. The unit motto, de oppresso liber, to free the oppressed. I wasn't oppressed. We honestly, in 2009, I don't think we were oppressed here in this nation. He was oppressed. His, this, these soldiers who laid down their rights so that we can be free from oppression, so that little girl can be free from oppression. And here's the question. Have we been good stewards of the liberty that is given to us by God, that's been bought and that's been defended by the blood of 1.2 million of our countrymen? Or are we like the wicked servants in that parable, the wicked servant, are we burying the talent? And I've got to be honest with you, church, America, I don't even think we're burying it. We're giving it away. We're doing something more despicable than that wicked servant. We just don't care about it. Some people say, well, there's a separation of church and state. We're not supposed to be involved in political things. We all vote. <laughs> we do. Look, this, we got to get outside of this false dichotomy that has been given to us for the past 50 years that says there's a sacred and there's a secular. For a Christian, there's only sacred. Everything you do, whether you eat or drink or work or play or vote, everything you do, you're to do to the glory of God. Everything we do. So we've got a responsibility to stand. Look, there are times when I might not be able to submit. Those times might be coming a lot quicker than we ever thought they'd be. And we're still called the steward even in those times. So how do we steward in that time? Well, we've got to stand. Ezekiel 22:30. 30, uh, in that passage, Ezekiel has been laying out a sermon against uh, God's people, specifically in Jerusalem. It was a city filled with blood. I mean, there was violence. People were killing people just for money. It was filled with gross immorality, just as bad or worse than anything we might see in our culture now. And it was filled with um, social oppression. People were stepping on the necks of everybody just to get ahead. But he wraps up his sermon with this. And you don't even care about worship. You don't care, people. That's what Ezekiel said. You don't regard the Sabbath. You count what is holy as something that's common. And then God says through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 22:30. 30, 
I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. None. What a sad situation. Stewardship had been squandered. God's people's role to reflect and represent him in society had been abrogated, had been deserted, it had been forsaken. There was a threat to righteousness, to God's glory, to God's honor. And he uses military defense terminology here because there's a threat to peace and liberty. He said, I can't even find anybody to build up the wall. And there's a gap and there's a threat coming through and wickedness and nobody's even standing in it. Do you think there's a gap today? Is there a gap? What's a gap? Where's the gap? Can I give you one? It's just one that I see. And I see it in me. We'll get there in a second. It's in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. And this is the last passage I'll have you look at and turn to. But I want, I'd like you to turn there. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, Let us hold fast. We could say stand. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. There should be some kind of public proclamation going on here. Without wavering. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Well, what if I do that and I get in trouble or I break the law or I go to jail? For he is faithful that promised. What if it's not safe? For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another. To spur, to provoke, it means to poke you. It's not fun, it's not comfortable. You and I are supposed to poke each other into love and good works. That's what he says here. Now how do we do that? How do we do that? Now look, I know that the church is not a building. It's not. It's God's people. Honestly, at Dublin First Baptist Church, I don't think that's a problem here. We are a church, praise God, by his grace, who's active, who's reaching out. Uh, let's keep it that way. God, please keep it that way. But I feel like some people who, like, it's not a building, it's a church. Look, if you're talking about corporate worship, if that is what you're talking about, no, that is important. It is. It's commanded here by God. Yes, we're to be the church. And we're to come together in church. It's not an either-or thing. In fact, if you want any kind of power be in the church, you better come together for corporate worship. That's what Hebrews 23 to 25 is saying. All right, listen to what he says here. Hold fast your profession of faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And here's a subordinate clause, meaning this is how you do it. In the King James, it's got a colon after that. Some has a common, but this is how you stand fast in your profession. This is how you uh, provoke one another to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some is. Well, other churches are doing it. Not worried about that. What is my response to God? Not forsaking the assembling. That Greek word, episynagoge. I know the church is not a building. It's where synagogue comes from. Episynagoge is used here. Don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together, but exhort one another. In assembly, and so much more, not less, so much more as you see the day approaching. What day? That day when Jesus returns. That day is talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. It says a gathering together in the coming of our Lord and our gathering together unto him. Guess what word is used there? Episynagoge, an assembly. Let me tell you something. I thank God for what we've been able to do, but that assembly on that day is not going to be virtual. It's not going to be on Facebook. It's not going to be partial because episynagoge means a complete collection, a complete gathering. And if you're a believer, you're going to be there in that assembly. And if you're a believer, guess where you need to be? In this assembly. i got to get personal. When I say personal, I mean me because it's happened all week. So now I get to share with you, and I hope you do get personal. 
Where's the gap? What's the gap? I'm the gap. I'm the gap. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Look, I'm not willing to be the gap any longer. I'm done gapping. All right, but I, I have been the gap. What are you talking about? How do we get here, Dublin First Baptist Church? I mean, in this culture. How do we get here, Southern Baptist Convention? How do we get here, Evangelical Church across America? How do we get to the place when a church was not even allowed to attempt safe corporate worship? We weren't even given the option to social distance. What caused the change in my perspective from two months ago till now? Information did. We've had a little bit more come out. I'm not talking about conspiracy theories. I'm talking about science and facts, like from Stanford University and University of Pennsylvania, right? And from Wake Forest Baptist Health. Uh, information. That's what we based our decision on as your church leadership earlier. Also incongruity. I don't understand why a chiropractor under phase one can be open, but Joel can't. I don't. So incongruity kind of confuses me. How do we get to a place where Lowe's is essential, an ABC store is essential, dry cleaners are essential, NASCAR racing teams and shops are essential, and, and honestly, don't get me wrong, except maybe with the exception of the ABC store, I think all those are important and probably essential, but not the church. Corporate worship, non-essential. It doesn't make any sense. There's incongruity there to me. But I, and then I got thinking, maybe there's not any incongruity. Maybe there's two reasons for this gap. And there's one, here's one, and I'm, this is not the, the most powerful one. I think it is, though, powerful evil. There's powerful evil in this world. And if we disagree, if we just choose to ignore it, uh, we're not going to uh, be having much success bringing glory to God and experiencing his good. There are people in positions of power that are at best ambivalent to the church and to God and God's will, and there probably are some that are outright antagonistic. You can probably think of one. Now, we are to be subject to them whenever we can be, uh, but we ought not support them. We ought to be praying for them, as we're told in, in uh, Timothy. But what's the second gap? Let's focus on this one, because we've got some real control over this one, and it's personal excuse. I already told you, that gap is me. I told them church was non-essential. I did. You know how I did that? For 13 years, I lived in northern Bladen County, and I continued to go to church in Fayetteville, where we went when I was in the Army. I was serving there. I was a deacon. I was a Sunday school teacher. I helped teach in their Christian school. And you know what? Uh, sun, after Sunday morning service, half the time I didn't get back home till 2 or 3. And when evening service rolled around, church was, to me, non-essential. I was wrong. I've confessed that sin. It's a personal excuse. Look, we have told them golf is essential, hunting's essential, uh, fishing's essential, sports and travel ball are essential. We told them all these things are essential, but church is optional. That's what we told them. Over and over. Not by words, rarely. I don't think I've ever heard it, but I've seen it by actions, and we've told them that by our values. And it's no wonder that they all act like we're out of our mind because we want to be here. For years, we've told them this. For decades, we've told them this. Now, before uh, we might be motivated to fight for our rights, and I think we should, to steward them, and before we begin to stand in the gap, and I think we should, I don't know where we've gotten to here. When I was growing up, there used to be this little phrase that the pastors would say, three to thrive, talking about Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If you want to uh, honor God and grow in your Christian faith, that's when you need to be there. And we're not there anymore. We're, we're down to one and done, whether that's because that's all that churches offer or that's all we're going to go to. Before we might be motivated to do that, stand in the gap, um, we better get things right with him first. We better get things right with God first. We've got a responsibility to stand in the gap, but that's going to have to start by standing on our knees. And Nehemiah, he literally did it. He went to the 
that Jerusalem. He built the wall. He stood in the gap. But before he did any of that, in Nehemiah 1, it says he broke down and got on his knees and confessed his sin and his nation's sin and his people's sin because there were times in his life when he didn't regard worship for God as most important. And it was spread throughout that nation. Listen, I have not told you what to do. I haven't. May God's word alone tell you that. We're Baptists. The I in Baptist stands for individual soul liberty, meaning the freedom to choose what you believe God wants you to do. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I can't. Romans 14.5 says, Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind by conviction and by standard to the word of God. But I want you to do what God's calling you to do. I'm not calling on our church to open full-blown. That would be reckless. Um, I'm not calling for prideful and presumptuous actions. I'm not calling for those who ought not come here because of health, safety considerations to do so and then endanger themselves. Listen to me. What I'm calling for this morning is for those who have the freedom to do so, to do so. Uh, Those who want to be here, who believe in their individual soul liberty, that it is God's will that they be here in corporate worship. Now, I'm also calling for grace, (laughs) for grace to be given for those who feel like they need to be here and that it is their freedom to be here. And I'm calling for grace for those who cannot, that we'd show it to them as well. So what are we to do? We're to submit to the authorities, ultimately to the Almighty, and we're to steward. We have better protect what God has given us, everything that God has given us. And we need to stand. We need to stand in the gap. It's time, church, for us to stand. But if we have any hope of doing that in the right way, we're going to have to stand by hitting our knees first. And confession and repentance, wherever you are, as God moves you to respond today, I I just pray that you would obey him. Let's sing our uh, invitation song.